Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivuplani. We've been talking a lot lately with family members of people with rare diseases about the need for more rapid development of drug therapies. Well, today we're going to take a look at a company whose mission is to create a more efficient path to drug discovery, and it's using one of the most powerful supercomputers in the world to do it. I'm happy to welcome Chris Gibson, the co-founder and CEO of Recursion, which in its nine-year history has created more than a dozen preclinical and discovery programs in diverse therapeutic areas. Chris developed a technology and approach that seeded Recursion as part of his MD-PhD work while at the University of Utah. After completing his PhD, he left medical school to launch the company, something we have in common. So Chris, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So I've been a fan of Recursion ever since I heard about it from our shared investors, Felicis Ventures, which before the show started, I mentioned led our Series A at Osmosis. Um, you know, you obviously have a very impressive background and the more I've peeled back the layers of Recursion, the more interested I've become. So for our audience, many of whom want to follow in your footsteps and maybe create companies or join exciting companies, can you tell them a bit about what got you interested in bioengineering and then drug discovery and development in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I would have to go so far back, back to sixth grade science class. Uh, but, but you know, I, I I always loved science from the very beginning. And I had a teacher in sixth grade, and our final project at the end of this year, at the end of that year, was a thing called sludge, where we got a jar full of a bunch of different, uh, uh, you know, materials. And our job was to use everything we learned over the year to separate those materials, figure out their density and all this sort of stuff, and then identify them. Um, and I picked the hardest sludge that one could pick. I think it had like 12 things in it, including gases that I had to capture. <laughs> and it was a miserable failure. I think I got like three or four out of the, the 12 things right. Um, but ultimately, it was trying to understand something super complex like that using kind of an engineering and scientific approach that just spoke to me. And that teacher actually took me to lunch because I was pretty upset with how poorly I, I had done. And she just somehow turned some switch inside of me that going after these big, hard things is worth doing. And it was, I feel like at that moment, like that was the moment I look back on as the start of recursion in many ways. And it started this kind of insatiable hunger for science that I've been following ever since. And I tended to operate mostly at the intersection. I, I loved that about bioengineering. You weren't going all the way to the full depth of any engineering discipline or in biology, but trying to understand how lots of different fields kind of interacted uh, and that's just always been a place that I think is is a fascinating place to be. That's fascinating. I mean, I, I love that story for many reasons. And one of which is that, you know, we're an education company at Osmosis and many of us got into science because of those influential teachers. And you, you're telling me this was sixth grade. This teacher had this, uh, had you guys do this? Or? Sixth grade, Carol Ponganis. I still remember it. And I think all of us have teachers like that in our lives. That's awesome. Yeah, we we just wrapped up this thing called the Raise Line Faculty Awards to honor teachers like that. For me, it was Sherry Jenkins, my anatomy teacher back in ninth grade, uh, who got me really interested in this stuff. That's awesome. What, does Carol know what you're doing now? I'm curious if she's uh, followed your career. She does. We spoke a few years ago, and uh, I try to make a, a, a note of following up with her every couple of years. That's awesome. Well, certainly I'm going to go more into questions, but one last question on this sludge concept, because yeah. I find it fascinating. Did you see the recent uh, 
research report by Meta, uh, where they took uh, samples of dirt and they found what using AI, they were able to find 60, you know, basically find the structures of tons of proteins that we've now never even seen before. Yeah, I think it was like 600 million or something like that. It's incredible. And it's interesting too, to see, you know, TikTok had a, a job post up recently for a digital chemist. Uh, DeepMind with isomorphic going into the space, Meta getting into the space. There's some really interesting technical challenges that are in the field of biology that seem to be a really good fit for some of the most advanced technical computational uh, uh, things that humans have built over the last decade or so. So it's going to be fascinating to watch the intersection of those fields in the coming years. Absolutely. Yeah. AlphaFold, all these different amazing things that are kind of the basis for a lot of the innovations that you all are leading. So so let's actually go from sixth grade to recursion. Tell us a bit about your MD PhD and your decision, uh, what what to do the PhD in, why to leave medical school to do this, and then we'll get into recursion. Absolutely. So I joined uh, the lab of a guy named Dean Lee when I started my MD PhD at the University of Utah. And Dean is a physician scientist. He's actually the president of Merck Research Labs now. So a very translational guy uh, who's gone on to, to the pharma industry. Um, and his lab brought together folks from a lot of different backgrounds to study mostly the idea of vascular stability, how our blood vessels are leaky or not leaky, and the role that that plays in lots of different diseases. And one of the diseases we were studying was one called cerebral cavernous malformation, or CCM for short. And it's a rare genetic disease, actually a pretty common rare genetic disease, about six times more people than cystic fibrosis, but one that hasn't gotten the same kind of uh, research coverage as, as CF. Um, and we were trying to understand that disease as a genetic model of vascular stability, vascular instability, because people basically get, you can think of it almost like mini aneurysms in the capillaries of their brain, and these aneurysms get sort of leaky. Uh, these lesions get leaky. So we were understanding the genetic underpinnings of that disease. This started well before I joined Dean's lab that built animal models, helped identify some of the genes that caused the disease, and that helped dissect the molecular and cellular biology that, that they thought underpinned the disease. And I got to help with the end of that. And we were determined to figure this thing out. And we figured out uh, and published that it was probably driven by activation of row A. Uh, that was what some of the pathophysiology was driven by. And so we decided to follow that up in the mouse model and inhibit row A with simvastatin because we were an academic lab. We weren't looking to make drugs at the time through HMG CoA reductase. Um, and we did, and we unveiled the data and we made the mice worse after five months of treatment. And it was this humbling moment of biology for myself and I think many people in the lab where the overwhelming complexity of this space we operate in, the space of biology, um, was so complex that the best kind of molecular and cellular biology tools in a lab that was regularly publishing in Nature and, and other high-end journals was pretty wrong. At least at the time, the data suggested we were wrong. And that was the moment um, where I think maybe recursion really started a second time. And over the coming uh, uh, you know, weeks and months, going to various lectures, including one by Stephen McKnight uh, from UT Southwestern, there were a bunch of little pieces of data that got us excited in his lab about doing a phenotypic screen so that we could cast aside some of our bias about what was driving this disease, just model the genetic loss of function, because we knew that incontrovertibly to be true, and then ask the cells 
what was actually driving the disease and what what could make the disease better. And so we built a phenotypic screen where we used microscopy images of human cells where we knocked down one of the CCM genes called CCM2 with siRNA and the cells looked radically different under a microscope. And rather than use a hypothesis-based approach, we just added thousands of known bioactive molecules. And and used actually a computer vision approach pioneered by a woman named Ann Carpenter at the Broad Institute called Cell Profiler to use uh, uh, the computer vision to train a very basic machine learning classifier to recognize the disease cells and the healthy cells. And we picked out about 39 drugs uh, or molecules that at the time made the computer vision algorithm uh, think that these cells looked healthy if they had started as diseased and we added some drug. And we went through a variety of other assays and eventually took two of those drugs into the animal model again. This was probably a year or two after that failure. One of them was vitamin D and the other one was what is now called REC994 that we have in phase two trials for CCM. Both, wow. of, those, uh, both of those molecules made the animals better. And so this traditional kind of hypothesis-based reductionist approach led to a failure. This hypothesis agnostic unbiased approach led to an animal-based success. And that's where we asked, could we go do this 50 times, 100 times, 1,000 times and replicate this approach to explore biology more broadly? That is fascinating. Thanks, thanks for breaking that down for us. I mean, I think a lot of our, our learners probably have been in wet labs, you know, whether they're undergrad or high school doing research, maybe now in med school or nursing school. Um, but to know the hop, skip, and a jump, it's, it's quite a big leap, actually, from maybe their experience in a wet lab doing this hypothesis-driven uh, testing to the scale uh, and uh, the way you've used everything from in silico biology to high-throughput drug screening, et cetera, to, to do this. So can you give us a bit of a uh, sense of recursion as it is today? You know, what are some of the things you are working on that get you excited? And what is your scale? If you can do anything, yeah. like I mentioned in the intro, the world, one of the best supercomputers in the world. Talk to us a bit about that too. Happy to share. Happy to share. I mean, for clarity, when we were working on CCM, I was using a multi-channel pipette to do all that work. <laughs> so it was relatively low throughput. I joke that today we do the equivalent of, of my entire PhD's worth of experiments about every 15 minutes at recursion. Wow. But that's based on uh, uh, this giant automated laboratory that we've built, which is just, you know, hundred feet away from me now, full of robots where we can do today up to about 2.2 million uh, experiments a week in our image-based wow. approach. So this is microscopy images. We generate more than 10 million of those images a week across more than 2.2 million wells um, is our kind of capacity. And of course, it takes several people to operate that lab. We actually run two shifts, six days a week, but still for a small number, relatively small number, about a dozen people to be running that lab and generating that scale of data is pretty incredible. But we've moved beyond just that image-based approach. As you mentioned, we now have built our own small molecule library at recursion where we have nearly 2 million uh, molecules physically in-house. That's kind of the same scale as many of the large pharma companies. And we can screen these molecules in various disease states. Um, we have, uh, as you mentioned before, we operate uh, one of the 500 fastest supercomputers in the world. It's called Biohive One. It's a 40 DGX100 supercomputer system. We use that to train neural nets on all of this data that we generate. Uh, and there's some specific technical reasons why we do that on-prem instead of in the, the cloud for our training of our neural nets related to kind of the size of the images that we use. Um, we, we also have started scaling other areas of biology. So we do transcriptomics experiments at recursion to the tune of about 13,000 of those samples a week. 
Um, we have a vivarium where we do animal work and that uh, rodent work is done with cameras in the cages that allow us to use machine learning to visualize how the animal is interacting with its environment, interacting with its neighbors, interacting with molecules that we might uh, uh, use to try and ameliorate a disease, a disease model. And so really recursion, everything is about scale and then using technology to measure really, really broadly these high dimensional signals and to get away from the traditional Western blot, right? Where you're kind of measuring one thing and it either goes up, it goes down or it stays the same. You can trick yourself a lot of ways with those low dimensional readouts. When you're measuring thousands of features in biology and chemistry, I think it's a lot harder as long as you do the statistics right to convince yourself and trick yourself that you're um, accidentally moving so many different features in, in the right direction. So we really do operate at massive scale. And today we've generated almost 20 petabytes of proprietary biological data. And to give you a sense of scale, if you took every feature-length film in human history in every language in 1080p, we would have about 10 times that amount of data <laughs> here at Recursion. So it's it's a lot of data. That's incredible. But I, I love I love how you communicate too, because it's very analogous to what built us at Osmosis as like the largest health education channel on YouTube. A lot of analogies and kind of, you know, the 15 minute PhD is very interesting <laughs> to me. I'm sure some of our listeners who are doing their MD PhDs wish that they they could do their PhD in 15 minutes. Yeah, I too. wish I could too. <laughs> <laughs> um so so you know, in this era of high throughput and you know, I know Illumina just announced that they have a two hundred dollar whole genome sequencing available now trying to get to that $100 mark or some $100 mark, the challenge becomes finding the signal from all the noise and, and taking these petabytes of data and like finding those uh, things that could work. How do you, you know, talk us through how do you go from high throughput to then actual clinical trials and, and what what's recursion involvement once you get to, you know, phase one, phase two, phase three, do you hand it off like these promising targets and promising molecules to like a larger pharma company to, to take through completion? How do you, how do you see it? Yeah, great question. So when we started at Recursion, we thought we could maybe just help identify these targets and then hand them off to folks. Um, and it turns out that the way the industry is set up, that a couple of PhD students and their professor in Salt Lake City suggesting targets does not create a massive audience of folks willing to pay the money to go <laughs> advance those targets. And so we had to keep building. And we keep kind of finding that as we build a little bit more, we start to see that there are these relationships across data sets as we go from target discovery to hit discovery to lead optimization and then preclinical testing and now even in the clinic and today recursion has five programs that are in clinical development four that are actively in clinical trials and we run those uh, ourselves and most of those are focused in rare genetic diseases or narrow niche areas of oncology um, and i think that what we've found is that taking this tech first philosophy that we've built at recursion requires a different way of thinking at sort of every piece of the journey. And so because there are so few companies that are thinking the same way, it has made the most sense for us to really build our own pipeline and build the team uh, that, that allows us to take things all the way through. Uh, and what that allows us to do is innovate across every step. And that's both expensive and hard, but also if you can do it well, creates a lot of opportunity. So that's kind of where we've been building. Now, we also have partnerships. We have a partnership in neuroscience and one oncology indication with Roche Genentech. It's one of the largest discovery collaborations ever signed in biopharma. Uh, we also have a partnership with Bayer in fibrosis. Mm -hmm. And in these deals, 
We are actually working with our partners to uncover new targets using our technology and their teams and their technology. And then we'll co-develop those to a certain point, uh, at which point they'll take it through the clinic. And those partnerships are around really big, expensive areas of of biology where a clinical trial might cost hundreds of millions of dollars. So in neuroscience, think of the big ones, Parkinson's, uh, Alzheimer's, ALS. These are huge clinical trials that a company like us probably couldn't do at any real scale. And you need so much expertise that we wanted to partner there. And then we'll focus on the rare indications that I think we can build. And then over the next decade, as we continue these partnerships, we're going to learn so much from these other companies that maybe one day we'll be able to go after the, the bigger diseases as well. That's awesome. That's really wonderful to hear. And, and so let, you mentioned rare. Let's get into that a bit because obviously we've been doing a lot of coverage of uh, of the rare disease space uh, for several reasons. Uh, one of the major major ones is that the Orphan Drug Act. It's coming up on its 40th anniversary next year, as you're probably well aware. Mm-hmm. And over those 40 years, there've been about 850 indications uh, or, or success stories, really, like drugs that have been repurposed or developed for various orphan indications. Um, and I had John Crowley on the podcast recently, oh, as you may cool. know, you may know yeah. from Amicus Therapeutics. Um, and you, we talked a lot about this next 10 years. What does it mean from year 40 to year 50 with technologies and companies like Recursion has built uh, in terms of accelerating that drug discovery? And uh, so talk to us a bit about maybe your focus on rare diseases. I know the origin story with the PhD. And then why do you think, like, is this fundamentally a different era that we can maybe see those 850 therapies go to, you know, 5,000 or 1,000? Where where do you think it'll be in 10 years? Well, I think we're going to see exponential growth in this space over the next decade. Um, And we like focusing our work initially in rare diseases because many of these have genetic genetically defined, uh, uh, they're genetically defined conditions where we know almost incontrovertibly, thanks to that revolution in sequencing uh, in the early 2000s, that a mutation in gene X leads to disease Y. Uh, and, and that's pretty well worked out for thousands of diseases. And because of that, for us taking this target agnostic approach, we can use now CRISPR instead of siRNA, we can use CRISPR to basically rebuild those same kinds of mutations or mutation effects in human cells. And then we can just watch and see what the cell does. And we can we can explore now millions of potential molecules in that context and ask, do any of these molecules give us a rescue of this complex signature that we get when we break this gene? And so it allows us to really isolate a lot of variables. And that's why we like genetic disease as a focus area for recursion. And also beyond the technical uh, side, because there's so much unmet need in the space, as you as you mentioned. So that's, a, that's an area of focus for us. Oncology also, f- f- uh, basically oncology also kind of flows in this same uh, direction where there's a lot of genetic drivers of oncology that fit really well with our our CRISPR-based tools at Recursion. All of this to say, though, that there's not just this technology revolution that Recursion is leading, but there's all kinds of new tools that are being built, technologies that are being built, things like uh, RNA medicines, for example. Uh, I feel like all of these converging over the next several years is absolutely going to put us on a trajectory to have a really significant increase in the number of new medicines. And what's more, I think many common diseases are are really going to be defined in narrower and narrower ways. We're going to realize that one biomarker is the driver of maybe response or non-response in a specific oncology indication that today is thought of as one big indication, but maybe is actually several smaller ones. And it's really moving us back to this idea of precision medicine. And eventually, I think, really to personalized medicine, which was 
a topic that got thrown around a lot more five or six years ago, but I think is where we're going to end up as we actually understand the complexity of biology that's around us. Totally. That makes perfect sense. And we've even seen that happen in, in real time for anybody who's been in the healthcare space for a while, even like breast cancer. Yes. You know, Brock is just one of many examples. Um, earlier today, I actually just had Matt Wilsey from the Great Science Foundation awesome. uh, on the podcast. You may know him. I do. Ngly1 deficiency, which his daughter, Grace, who's 13, has. You know, I'm thinking about him. I'm thinking about people like Nick Saro, who uh, his kids have alcaptonuria. They're well treated now. Uh, he's out in the UK. And actually, alcaptonuria, you probably know, was one of the first, if not the first, disease that showed this uh, one-to-one between a, a mutation, mentally inherited uh, gene, uh, and then this devastating one in 500,000 condition. You know, there are hundreds, thousands, millions, really, of these patients who have these scary, rare genetic disease diagnoses. How do you decide what to work on? You know, you only have a finite amount of time. I mean, you've obviously done high throughput, but I'm sure you know, patient advocacy groups are knocking on your door every day asking, hey, can you you have anything for this gene mutation or that? How do you decide? Yeah, absolutely. And that really is how things have been for the last several years. People have been knocking on the door. And in many cases, as was the case with Engelai 1 and Matt and, and the, the Grace Science Foundation, we did work on that disease for several years. It's a really, really tough one. Um, and unfortunately, we were not able to, to crack it at the time. But we've sort of moved away from focusing on initially one disease at a time. And as we started exploring 100 and then a few hundred different genes and eventually more than 1,000 genes, we actually saw the opportunity to do what we call mapping and navigating. And so we've now knocked out every gene in the human genome in multiple human cell types because we've built all of the scale here to do these millions of experiments a week. And we've profiled them with imaging and increasingly with other kinds of high dimensional signatures. And what that's allowing us to do with these neural networks is train neural networks that are trying to understand how every gene is related to every other gene in the genome, how each protein is related to every other protein, how a molecule might not interact with just one disease context at a time, but many. And that mapping and navigating has become the focus of recursion. And it took a long time, but in the, the, the summer of 2020, we finally got to the point where we were able to use this map to actually start to predict drugs that we thought might work in the context of a certain genetic uh, condition without ever directly testing that drug against that gene. And this is important because if you take, take a million molecules, right, and you want to test them against, let's say, every gene in the genome, um, if you did that experiment with three replicates at three doses, even at 2.2 million experiments a week that we're doing, it would take you hundreds of years. There's this combinatorial explosion. And so we wanted to really focus ourselves on building uh, technical capabilities that would allow us to profile millions of molecules, thousands of genetic contexts, maybe in many different human cell types, and then start predicting how all of those things interact. And we saw that as a way where when a patient group called us, we might be able to just look in this map and give them guidance or look in this map and identify opportunities that we could act against at, at a higher scale. And that's what we've been up to for the last couple of years. And I'm happy to report that our very first program that used a map uh, to find this interaction, just uh, we just announced that we're moving it into clinical trials a few weeks ago. So we're starting to see the fruits of this mapping and navigating that I hope will be a huge part of what helps us go from that 850 uh, that you talked about before to eventually one day having it be super normal for not just us, but many companies to take N of one diseases and be able to generate a hypothesis and test it quickly 
so that we can try and affect patients uh, that have really, really rare diseases, as well as patients who have really common ones. That's incredible. That's, I mean, such an exciting time and totally changes kind of what the role of uh, of every every stakeholder in the healthcare system would be from patients all the way to the pharma companies and health systems. That's right. Um, it actually reminds me, there's a, a nature paper that just came out last month. One of my colleagues at Elsevier was co-author on Chris Cheadle uh, entitled Old Drugs, New Tricks, uh, Leveraging Known Compounds to Disrupt Coronavirus and Use Cytokine Storm. And this was an example of, of the in silico biology you were talking about, where they did a screen of over 5,000 compounds and identified, uh, predicted that dexamethasone would be one of them that would help with uh, reducing the cytokine storm from acute respiratory illness from COVID-19. So we're starting to see many, many more common uh, uses of technologies like the one you described. How do you stay on top of everything at recursion? How do you make sure like your, you know, whether it's CRISPR or these neural networks you've trained are still the cutting edge because this thing's moving so quickly? How do you, how do you even stay on top of it? Well, I think we've built a learning and innovation culture and we have almost 500 people at the company. Uh, they all have different interests. They all read different articles. Uh, a group of them were actually, we published in April of 2020, 1700 molecules that we tested against live SARS-CoV-2 virus in human cells. And we're seven for eight on predicting clinical trial outcomes. The only one wow. we got wrong was dexamethasone, but we got seven <laughs> of the other ones right. Uh, so, you know, interesting to see uh, that was driven by a set of really passionate folks who wanted to make a difference in that context. And we made all that data available to the public back in back in, in 2020. And I think this generally, um, this this idea of having a great team, giving them freedom to go explore, and then having a culture where people, when they have a good idea, there's good ideas rule. So it doesn't matter if you're an RA or you're a scientist or you're the CEO, good ideas rule and bad ideas should be smacked down. Uh, and so we, we, we try to create that culture. It's never perfect, but we try to create that culture where um, our next best innovation can come from anywhere in the company uh, and, and any paper anybody reads. And I, I think we've done pretty well there. We're not always on the front of every single innovation. I don't think we could afford to be, but we end up being near where we need to be on some of the most important uh, revolutions in science. It's amazing. Uh, really amazing. And you know, before we started this, uh, we were talking about skiing and snowboarding in, in, in Utah. Obviously, you're in Utah. I, I live in Utah, too. I'm curious, uh, you know, the reason I even mentioned this is that I grew up in Florida. Um, and so I should be a better surfer than I am snowboarder, but I'm way better at snowboarding than I am surfing. Um, and I was thinking about that, and I gave a talk to Elsevier's technology team. There are a couple hundred engineers about innovation and how we do that osmosis. And the analogy I gave was surfing, wakeboarding versus surfing versus snowboarding, where mm. essentially it boils down to the compound interest formula, like the faster you can iterate and learn, where you know, when you're snowboarding, you're learning because you just get up, it's gravity, and that's your iteration. So in one hour of learning, you can iterate 60, 80, 90 times. You may get bruised, a bruised butt or wrists or whatever, but you'll learn fit quickly. Whereas surfing, you have to wait for the wave to come and propel you, which is every you know couple of minutes. Mm -hmm. So what you've done at recursion is truly like hyper snowboarding in terms of how fast you're learning and iterating. And again, as long as you have ways to pick out the signal from the noise, which by the way, I mean, since Elsevier found that, that dexamethasone one, maybe there's some collaboration there with, with what they have and what you've done to, to get it out of eight as an example. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think you're right. I love iteration and, and virtuous cycles of learning as a core principle for building anything that can that can keep up with the technology uh, environment around us. Totally. Well, I'm aware of your time, so I only have two other questions. Um, obviously, I could make this a 
full several hour podcast, <laughs> but uh, we try to keep it short for our learners who are busy between lab, uh, clinic and lab. Um, I'm curious, what advice would you give to someone, say another a younger Chris Gibson who is in their MD PhD program about approaching their career in uh, in healthcare research um, uh, moving forward? I would say the most exciting things that have happened in my life with respect to science have always happened at the interface. And it doesn't mean you don't have to go deep, but find people who have a different background than you. Um, you know, I sat next to a geneticist on one side and a physician on the other side in Dean's lab and getting their perspective on the work I was doing and learning about their work. It kind of created these connections that I think really were formative in what we built at Recursion and in and, and my own career. Um, and maybe it's my own bias as a bioengineer, but I I really recommend for folks, you know, the idea of trying to speak many languages, right? Um, we don't do it so well in America when it comes to actual languages, um, but uh, compared to all, all our friends around the world. But in terms of science, I think uh, there are many folks who are trained really well here uh, and, and around the world to operate at the interface. And that's, I think, the best place that that one can be if you want to really be able to build and create. I love that. Yeah. Innovation is often just connecting the dots between right. existing ideas. So that's great. That's great that you guys built that there. Good advice. And then the last thing is, is there anything else you want our learners to know about you, recursion, the industry as a whole before we let you go for the day? Well, I think one of the things that's important for folks to know is that this industry is full of incredible scientists who dedicate their lives to finding medicines. And what I was fascinated to learn as I started hiring chemists and biologists and other things at Recursion, some of these folks having worked for decades in large pharma companies, the failure rate is so much higher than I ever even appreciated. It's about 96% of programs that start in biopharma ultimately fail before they make it to, to patients on the market. Um, uh, more if you start with really, really early discovery work. Uh, and so there are incredible, really capable scientists who will spend their whole career in this industry and end up never being part of a drug that makes it onto the market. And I think with all the technology tools we have today, um, I'm excited to be a part of helping to improve that. But I also think it's important for all of us to recognize, you know, the the shoulders we stand on, all the incredible publications and all the great scientists who've toiled away for the past 50 years or so to create the opportunity we have today for all of us to take advantage of this and, and keep driving. So a lot of credit to everybody who came before us. And, and I'd also just say the industry gets a bad rap, I think, because of a few bad actors that's well-deserved, but there's a lot of great folks in biopharma. And for those in academics, don't totally rule it off your list. Uh, you know, go engage a little bit. Uh, academics are great. I almost did that as well permanently, but uh, there's a lot to offer here in, in industry and it's, it can be very, very fulfilling. Uh, certainly, I can definitely see that. And clearly you're still in the game, but you know, have some big shoulders that others will be standing on or currently are standing on uh, as they continue driving this innovation. So Chris, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today, but more importantly for the work you and Recursion are doing to raise the line and strengthen our healthcare system with bringing precision medicine and drug discovery and development, uh, making it reality. Huge thanks. Thanks, Shiv. Appreciate it. And with that, I'm Shiv Gulani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.